0: Welcome, I'm Connor Beaton, and this is The Man Talk Show. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Mr. Scott Shea. Scott Shea is a leading businessman, thought leader, and author of two widely read books. He is also the co-founder of Signature Bank, uh, which he co-founded in 2001. And the bank has become one of the best banks in New York for private business owners. Scott's second book, In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism, which we talk about today on the show, has been recognized as one of the best books of 2018 by Mosaic authors and earned a finalist award Uh, from the National Jewish Books Association. Uh, He gives talks around the country and is interviewed on TV, radio, and podcasts many times throughout the year. Um, He's done some incredible work. And I really like this topic because uh, Scott kind of dives into this this duality between atheism and religion. And so we uh, take a, a bit of a deep dive. Uh, Scott, you know, talks mostly about the Jewish faith, but we do talk a little bit about Christianity and uh, a few of the other uh, religions and and this comparative analysis between uh, what it means to be an atheist in modern culture, uh, along with questioning some of, uh, you know, the the religious rules and the religious dogma that is presented. Scott has a very unique approach. It's, uh, it's very um, educated, very well read. And, um, and so we dive a little bit into um, what it means to have faith, what it means to Be with uh, you know in a in a religion and how some religions are you know struggling uh, in these days with low attendance rates, um, but also why so many people are drawn to atheism. So this is more of a discourse and a conversation uh, about the impact of religion, about the impact of atheism, and the comparison between the two. And he shares some of his takeaways from uh, from his book in good faith. So without any further delay. Please welcome Mr. Scott Shea.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Connor.
0: Yeah, I am. I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's it's interesting. I you know I always do my interviews uh, on Tuesdays, or I try and relegate the interviews to Tuesdays. And I saw this one coming up on the calendar, and I was pretty excited. You know, I spent some time uh, yesterday just kind of going over what I want to dive into today, and I think this is such a, a interesting and important topic. So. Just to just to sort of tease the listener even more <laughs> than they might already be, um, but I'm excited to dive in. So, uh, before we start off, before we kind of get into the the heart of you know talking about really this concept of, of questioning religion and, and atheism, which I think is so powerful, I just want to start off with the question that I ask all my guests, which is: tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
1: Well. There's one moment that happened early. It happened when I was about 10 or 11. My father, as I talk a little bit about in the book, was a Holocaust survivor. He had been liberated from Dachau when he was 60 pounds, uh, probably days away from death. And he made it to New York, was able to get married, have a child, and build a life. But interestingly, it, certainly during that period until he was until he was much older, until he was post retirement, he really didn't talk about the Holocaust, about his experience being slave labor and being in the concentration camps. He belonged to this club called the Jewish, the Chicago Jewish Lithuanian Club, which was basically made up of survivors from Jewish survivors from Lithuania, and m- my friends and I from who were children of survivors in the club, knew to avoid topics that even touched on the Holocaust experiences of our parents. So it was, it, was, it was just a topic that was more or less avoided. But there was one evening. So this club wasn't really a club. It didn't have a building, per se. It had, it met in different synagogue and JCC multi-purpose rooms. They'd sort of, they'd either rent the room or they'd be given the room. Anyway, they loved to play cards once in a while. I, I still remember it was about this time of year. It was August, early September, that there was a meeting of the Chicago Lutheran Winning Club and they were they were playing cards. They were playing poker, actually. One of the people... At the table, said really matter of factly, How can you go to synagogue on the high holidays? Where was God when accounted for the dead members of our family? And the dealer looked up, and, and everybody was basically silent. And then the responses came in it interesting, it came in such a matter of fact way, as though people were just saying, Hit me, or, you know, I'll see you. And, and they gave me answers that actually seared into me and I've been thinking about my entire life. Some of them just said, God doesn't exist. There is no God. Get out get over it. We're on our own. Others say, said at the time, God meted out punishment for disobedience. We Jews suffered because we didn't follow the commandments properly. Somebody else said we didn't we can never really know what's at stake in history. If it weren't for the Holocaust there wouldn't be a state of Israel. So even though it was really, really bad, it somehow was important in history. And then another group, another person said uh, that it wasn't God's fault. God was there all the time, wondering why his other children in Europe did nothing to save the, to save the Jews. And, and where were the Jews of the United States? Where were their protests? And then I realized that there was another answer, and I didn't get this until later. It was the silence that hung over the room, and I realized as my life went on, and as I, you, you, as you grow up, you get a deeper and deeper understanding of your, of your father. You know, a ten or eleven year old understanding of a father is a, is, a, is a very incomplete understanding. But I realized that my father and some of, her friend, some of his friends were absolutely positively certain there was a God. But they were really angry at God. So they wouldn't talk to God. And they lived their lives in that sort of way, informed by that. And it got me to thinking, you know, what is good and evil? What is our purpose in life? Is there a purpose in life? And, and so that Poker game, ironically, at, at a, in a multi-purpose room, was an encounter that 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 really shaped a lot of my intellectual journey for my entire life, and I can recall it today as as vividly as as probably fifteen minutes afterward.
0: I love how some of those moments in our childhood just you know sort of get seared into our minds and and sort of formulate the questions. That that we want to to seek or understand or you know be a part of in in some way shape or form. So maybe tell the listeners a little bit more about uh, what came after that for you and your life and and some of the pieces because you've done some some absolutely amazing things outside of you know the, when I when I started to research you and the work that you've done it was very interesting because being an author is is only sort of one of the pieces of the things that you have. Uh, sort of done in your life, so maybe just give the listener like a ninety second trajectory of where that questioning took you. Sure.
1: Well, like many things that happen in one's life, it, it sort of was there, but I didn't really act on it. I mean, I, I thought about it. I, I thought about it from time to time, and it did have a shaping impact on my life. But you know, I was grown up. I was. I was. I was raised to believe that you have to get a job you have to get you know get your career going and so i was i i I was pretty uh persistent at doing that so i went to uh i went after high school i went to northwestern university i went straight through and got an mba I went directly after that, and, and had a job on Wall Street where I learned a lot as well—the um, good, the bad, and the ugly, as it were. And then I had the great privilege, while I was at Salomon Brothers, to make a friend, mentor, partner uh, by the name of Lou Ranieri, who some of your listeners may know was one of the founder, was one of the inventors, if you will, of the mortgage-backed securities market. So I worked with him for a number of years. I'm still extremely close friends, and he's still my uh, he's still my mentor. Uh, but along the way, I had this crazy idea to start a bank, uh, which um, I thought that New York, while it was overbranched, was underbanked. I thought there was a niche opening for a business bank, which is how we started. So we started Signature Bank. I started it with two two uh, gentlemen who I convinced um, that I wasn't entirely crazy. They thought I was crazy at first, but I sort of, again, I'm very persistent. Uh, we convinced uh, a foreign bank to provide us the seed capital. The foreign bank subsequently sold out, but they provided us the seed capital. And so we started a bank from scratch, May 1st, 2001, with no deposits, no nothing, uh, no clients, five offices, uh, $42.5 million in capital. And we broke even after 21 months. We went public after 34 months. And we've never done an acquisition. And a lot of people haven't heard of us again since we're a bank for small and medium-sized business. And that's been my day job. But I passionately believe that mm. work is not everything. And so I've been an active volunteer, an active Jewish communal volunteer, essentially since I arrived in New York, uh, being involved in all sorts of sorts of activities. And on the side, I like to write. So uh, this is my second book. They take a long time for me to write because I do have a a full-time day job. This book took me five plus years to write, and um, and then I get sort of obsessed. So I, when I'm when I'm writing, I, I I'm <laughs> like that annoying guy on the overnight flight who has the light on all night because he's working on his laptop. That was that's me. I apologize <laughs> to any viewers who are kept up, um, but I get obsessed. I took you know take all my time and I try to accomplish whatever I'm doing.
0: Yeah, nice. Well, let's let's chat about the book because you know I think there's a lot, there's so much for us to cover, and we won't get uh, you know sort of near complete on on all the things that we could dive into because you the the book is quite incredible and goes into a, a multitude of topics. But it's called In Good Faith: Questioning Religion and Atheism, and so we're gonna we're gonna dive into some of the pieces. But maybe if you can just give the listener a bit of context, what sort of prompted. Uh, initially, you starting to write this book, and and what you wanted to convey to to the reader that that picks it up.
1: So, because of my first book, and because I I talk to a lot of people in my in my in my business life, and people do know I'm a I take my Judaism seriously. Mm-hmm. I get I've gotten a lot of God conversations with Christians, with Muslims, um, with non believers, and I found that I I was talking to essentially. Three different groups: um, one who thought that religion was bunk, it was superstition, it was people clinging to the superstitions and false beliefs of their parents, but but they could, they could be persuaded, and if just, all they needed to be was shown how believing in God was really dumb, and then I would talk to a second group, uh, folks that would fall into the second group broadly, who would say. Yeah, God doesn't really make sense. It it's not really something that I can explain, but I know God exists. I feel God uh, and God is important to me, and so I park my my rational brain at the door, my reason at the door, and and this is what I believe. And then I talked to a third group, and and frankly, this was the smallest <laughs> group of people who believed that it was that that they could both be a reasoned a reasoned person, a person of reason, and a faith person, and that there was no conflict. And I always considered myself in that group, and so I started reading the atheist, the major atheist authors: Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Michael Shermer, Daniel Dennett. And I thought, boy, these are good writers. And then I thought, okay, let me read the other side. And I found that there really weren't a lot of books on the other side that didn't require that you already be a believer to to tune in. So I set out to write a book. I first was looking for someone else to write the book, but after a little while, I decided to write a book to explain why it's rational to believe in God with all we know about science, all we know about reason, all we know about the historicity of the Bible, and our sense of modern morality, understanding that there's evil in the world. And once I got on this, I realized I didn't want this to be I don't mean this in any sort of a, 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 a pejorative way. I didn't want this to be just a Jewish book. So I wanted to reach out. So I spoke, and, and this was also part of my journey, which frankly was just a wonderful part of the journey, is that I spoke to a variety of Christian faith leaders and Muslim faith leaders. And I wanted to get at a broader picture of why it makes sense to believe in God and why God is so relevant today and the idea of monotheism is so relevant today uh, as much as at any time in in the history of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean I think you know it's it's interesting because I've had a, a few people on the show who have written books or or content or sort of specialized within the the theological realm and yeah, I think the more that I've gone into this subject just from out of my own curiosity in the last decade, you know, I took theology classes in university and it's something that i've always been curious about the one thing that i've that i really appreciated not having grown up in the jewish tradition at all but the one thing that i have appreciated from the outside looking in on the jewish tradition is that there seems to be a lot of questioning a lot of intellectual understanding and conversation And, and i really i really like the way that you have sort of laid this book out And I think it just shows the sort of the the background and and the thought that's gone into it. But let's so so let's dive into some of the content specifically, because I think this is where the, the conversation for me is not only really interesting, but powerful. So let's talk a little bit about idolatry. And I think maybe we can just start off by defining that um, for for all of us, for the listener, and and for you to sort of give your definition of idolatry, and, and then we can kind of talk about how that's showing up in today's world. Because I think it's having a, a very prominent uh, figure figure place in in our world right now. Oh, absolutely.
1: So so
0: here's the key, and and if I could and if I could leave your
1: listeners with one thing to remember, it would be that the Bible came to overturn idolatry. So We generally in the modern era don't give much thought to idolatry. We think, oh, it's about bowing down to statues or animals or the like. But the Bible is actually pretty careful through its stories to define idolatry in a specific way. Idolatry is a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpowers to finite beings, i.e., people, ideologies, natural processes, or in the ancient world, indeed, animals. Not 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 so much today. But idolatry. We might have thought that we licked, and we say it in the Passover seder and the in the Passover service that you know we we beat the god king Pharaoh thirty three hundred years ago. But in reality, the, we saw a whole 20th century of God, King, Pharaohs, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family, Hitler, of course, and it goes on and on. And they used the same tropes that Hitler used. I'm, I'm sorry, that the God, King, Pharaoh used. They used pageantry, poetry, theater, mass parades all of course backed up with strong armies and secret informers. And so that's how Stalin got away with starving a quarter of the Ukraine, killing all the kulaks, sending tens of millions of people to the to the to the gulag and nobody nobody questioned him. Nobody questioned that he didn't have the super authority to do that. He was the god king. He had his famously he had his His image broadcast by the Soviet Space Agency into space, anywhere from 45 to 90 million people died in the Great March because Mao, the Great March, I'm sorry, the Great March and the Great Cultural Revolution, because Mao said that's what needed to be done. And nobody questioned it. The Cultural Revolution happened. And again, super authority. But here's the important thing as well. It's not only on the macro level about countries and about nations, but idolatry is also important to our interpersonal relationships. So, on a micro level, and let's just let's just take one example: How did Harvey Weinstein and Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer um, get away with what they got away with? Because they made themselves into idols there within their industries and companies. They were unquestioned and unquestionable. What they said was truth. What they said was correct. Anybody who really tried to topple them in, in the case of Harvey Weinstein, if someone went against Harvey Weinstein or resisted him both male or female, their career was, was basically truncated and ended. And, we see that explained time and time again in the Bible, that idolatry can happen from great God kings trying to deify themselves or individuals deify themselves. And it's a matter of recognizing that in our, both in our larger affairs and in our most intimate encounters.
0: So do you think that uh, that the message within some of the Bibles is to be aware of idolatry, that it, that it's a form of, uh, societal, societal is because it seems like there is, I I think from what you're saying that idolatry is, is a, a system in which people put an exceptional amount of power into one person's hands. Is that roughly an accurate way of, of sort of describing it?
1: Yes, it's when, look, the Bible hates monopolies of power, and and it's not the topic for today, but time and time again, the the, the Bible tries to divide power. But it also hates it when monotheists take too much power. I mean, the, the third commandment, the way we Jews count it, is not to take God's name in vain. And some people say, oh, well, that means you shouldn't swear in God's name. You shouldn't write God's name. But that's not what it's talking about what it's talking about is anytime someone sets themselves up as the sole spokesperson for God and says, this is what God says, follow me. I have a direct intercom to God. I know better than other people. That again, sets that person up as a super authority. And that is really, really risky. And whenever you have one person or one ideology monopolize power that's when, unfortunately, a lot of horrors start on a, on a macro basis. Yeah. And so that's why it's very, very worrisome. Monopolies of power are very, very worrisome. And long ago, the Bible explained that.
0: Okay, so, you know, I think one of the big things that often gets written about or spoken about by some of the atheist writers and authors you know people like christopher hitchens and, and even sort of sam harris for a while is that there there is a, a viewpoint that many religions are based off of a foundation of idolatry that sort of one being one entity one person has all the power and disseminates that power to other people and that's that's a huge part of the message. So I would love to get your take on that because I think you actually touch on it in the book.
1: Yes. So to me, this is actually the key contribution that I think I make to the modern discourse. Because what most, not most, I would say every single atheist author I've read conflates religion and monotheism. So religion includes monotheism, idolatry, It includes all sorts of beliefs, beliefs in anything. And I think it is true that we are hardwired to believe in things. So we're hardwired in a way to be religious. But here's what the atheists don't get is the bible came the whole purpose of the bible was to overturn idolatry which was everywhere in everything prior to the prior to the bible so monotheism is belief in one god not giving ever all the power to one person entity period Idolatry, on the other hand, is giving all the power to the god king or whoever is being idolized or ever is leading the ideology. And that's the, that's the big difference. And it's so easy to fall into idolatry on a big level, like we were talking about on a macro level, or to self-deify, or to deify ideologies, to deify political parties. Whenever we park our reason and our thinking at the door and place blind faith in our leader, in our political party, in in our ideology and lose track of the fact that there's a greater truth, that the Bible says that we're all right from chapter one, that we're all created in God's image. We're all created with a spark of divinity. We all share that. That's when bad things happen, and they happen under often the rubric of religion, but they aren't monotheist. And that's why, by the way, the, the way that we number the commandments, the way Jews number the commandments, the third commandment, which says it's part of the second commandment for Christians, not to take God's name in vain. What it means is it's not, it's not just about saying, oh, we're not gonna swear in the name of God, we're not gonna write God's name out, It's much more deeper. Again, like, and it goes to the idolatry issue. Anytime someone says, "I'm speaking for God," "I'm the sole spokesperson for God," "I have a direct intercom for to God," "You don't." Here's what I'm telling you to do. Then we can actually turn monotheism into idolatry, or we can at least uh, use all uh, abuse um, the idolatrous tropes under. The costume of idolatry, and that's really when religions go off. off That's when I'm sorry. That's when monotheism goes off base. Whenever you have that sole spokesperson with God. And it happens again and again and again. And that's why the whole Bible hates monopolies of power. It doesn't even allow the king to have a monopoly of power. It as the king is sort of like in the in the in the Hebrew world, uh, in the Hebrew Republic was commander in chief but he was subject to the laws of the bible had to have one at hand all the time the the priests in the temple had a sec at a separate funding source were separate from the from the state it had a sanhedrin which was a judicial branch and of course it had a prophet who was in place of the fourth estate in place of the the journalists of the day so the bible is very different than the idolatrous tropes that, um, that it came to defeat. And that's what the atheists don't understand.
0: So where you know, I think one of the challenges that we're starting to see, uh, maybe not starting, but I think one of the challenges that we do see is that the sort of extreme versions of religion often turn into a more, um, I don't I don't know how to re say it but they they often turn towards idolatry in a very uh serious way so you can see more evangelical or zealous sects of religion seem to move in that direction and so is that a, in your opinion is a misinterpretation like how do some forms of christianity or judaism or hinduism or um, you know, Muslim turn to this sense of, you know, one being, one entity is absolute. And and that thing, that person, worshipping that person is more important than living the message. Like I, I often from the outside, when you look at, for me at least, and from what I've read, when I look at uh, things like evangelical Christians, in in the really intense versions of it, Worshipping Christ seems to be more important than living what he's actually teaching. And that is a form of deification. It's a form of idolatry in itself. So where do you where do you think that comes from within the religious uh, segment and 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 what do we need to sort of like watch out for there?
1: Well, it's a great question. And um, sometimes people become ritually observant and worry about the relationship with god to the detriment of worrying about their relationship with people as i said hillel summed up the whole bible by saying the golden rule and um, there's a jewish tradition that if you follow the seven rules of the sons of noah that you're good to go for the uh, afterlife. There's certainly that tradition, and it doesn't revolve around believing in God. It revolves around living your life in a way that you worry about other people, you make sure that there's justice, and you don't do any 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 harm to any you know don't do any harm to anyone. And look, in my personal experience, and I talk about this in 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 the book. There was uh, I was involved in a Company where we um, uh, bought some troubled loans, and um, in one case, this one troubled loan got worse and worse, and, and then the the, the the entity went bankrupt. And um, when it came time to take this, this the, the owner's deposition, the owner of this property was dressed in classically um, fervently Orthodox Jewish clothing. Um, uh, dressed in the way that you might see in in Crown Heights or Williamsburg in New York, and he essentially admitted to stealing money, taking money, diverting money, and then lying about it. And so, and this it still hurts to tell this story. Um, so I was in a, a a team meeting where we were talking about talking about this, and I was possibly the only Jew in the room. And someone turned to me and said, you know, this person who we were deposing admitted to lying, admitted to stealing. And and then when the lawyer asked, well, how do you square this with apparently being a religious person and breaking at least two of the Ten Commandments, how does that work? And he and then this person gave a very technical answer. And. um everybody looked at me in the room. I mean, you know, I was the, uh, I was the Jew who had to explain this. And and at first I, I almost shuddered because it was so painful to hear this. And then it took me a second and I realized, you know, this person actually, and I said, this person actually isn't a religious Jew. Um, he may be ritually observant. He may like to dressed like a religious Jew. He may be in a community where he has to dress this way to fit in. But if he's breaking two of the Ten Commandments, if he's not concerned about the golden rule, about not doing unto someone else what's hateful to him, he's not a religious Jew. He may as well go out and have a bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> this is, there's no religiosity to him. He, he's dressed in that way. And sadly, many people Dress in religious garb, but they're really self-deifying. Mm. Because again, for this fellow, what was important was making money. The Bible clearly says that's not the most important thing, and we see that time and time again: is that people do use, um, do abuse religion in in an idolatrous, self-deifying way. Well. If I can just... They should just realize they're not they're not really following the Bible.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if I can just jump in there, I think you know what I've noticed is that for a lot of people, religion becomes an extension of the ego, right? And so, from a psychological standpoint, they you know they end up seeing this this religious force as a form of self superiority and and self-deification and the more holier they are the the more above everyone else uh they become and that's that is a huge function of the ego and so it's interesting to see how even <laughs> even within the realms of spirituality and the realm of altruism that our ego can get sort of attach itself onto these belief systems and, and create separation and segregation, which is very different from what the message is, is teaching. Um, we could we could go further into uh, idolatry and and self-deification and self-idolizing. And it's such a, a fascinating conversation that we could sort of tie into politics. And I think we might have to maybe do this in a, in a longer form uh, in another conversation. But I do want to talk about Um, you know, before we sort of wrap things up, this went pretty quickly. uh, I do want to talk about how prayer fits into all of this. And, you know, your your book, you dive into things like, is the Bible a hoax? And, and, you know, why have faith and why pray? And there's a lot of pieces that I do want to talk about um, next time I have you on the show. But for today's uh, sake, let's just talk about prayer. And and where you think that that fits in this whole mix because that seems to have taken on a whole life of its own, especially in like the personal development field and you know some of the spiritual communities that are popping up. So maybe talk to me a little bit about how you see prayer fitting into this whole mix.
1: So prayer and actually during the writing of this book, the thing that changed for me bo- most was 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 the intensity of how I prayed as I was. As I was thinking about these topics, and I was I was really uh, spending more time um, grappling with what does it mean to to, to 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 try to have a relationship with the Almighty, and what I've learned is that real prayer it, it's not about a about having a cosmic vending machine and saying you know Lord I want this I want that because in a way, that's sort of idolatrous prayer. Yes, there's an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent God. And our place on this planet is to somehow make this a better place. That's our mission. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to partner with God. And and try to find our place in doing that. So I guess the thing that I've, I, I really feel strongly about is the real prayer has to have an honesty that's deeper than one can have with a psychotherapist, with even with a spouse, for it to have any chance of being effective. You know, we can't fool God. And and it's easier to fool ourselves and fool God. And so when we think about things ourselves, we might be fooling ourselves, we might be taking the easy path, but we can't do that with God if we believe in an omnipotent God. So we we put a light, a bright light, that is so fiercely piercing. And when we really look at ourselves in prayer through that bright light, I think for many of us, and I certainly include myself, our, our natural reaction, our natural inclination is to squint and cringe and recoil and reconsider what we're even asking for and what we're doing with our lives because again I'm speaking for myself sometimes in prayer I just you know I can feel that just sheer embarrassment and so prayer and this is what I think is great it it requires an honest appraisal of what where we are what we're petitioning for what we're trying to do in life and i think that that when we when we pray we really can consider our 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 actions and how we're gonna be able to better fulfill that golden rule are we doing things that if they were done to us would be hateful are we living up to our own responsibilities are we recognizing our failings are we trying to move ourselves to a better better Place and look. You just mentioned an article. You just mentioned uh, folks who are uh, I, idolaters in monotheist cloth just before. And, and and here's the thing: someone who prays on fellow human be- beings, p r e y s, but prays to God, expecting Him to answer his or her prayers, but ignoring his or her deeds, just because we fulfill some ritual formula and get the words right is really self-defying. They're self deifying they're objectifying. They, that's sort of the clearest, clearest signal to me that idolatry is going on. Because idolatry, I'm sorry, um, idolatry is, is the easy path, but prayer, and this is why prayer can shake us out of idolatry. Prayer provides us, I think, for a space for radical honesty with ourselves, that can lead us to action, that will transform our relationships with others and with God. And if we do that, we can change the world and find out how to better situate ourselves after that sort of penetrating self-examination. In Hebrew, to pray is lehit palel. It's a reflexive word. It, It doesn't actually... It's not a word that relates to other people; it relates to an internal self judgment. And I think that's, for me, for me, prayer helps organize the rest of my life. And 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 I I, I hope that my book actually helps people with that. And I and I do get. And I, I've mentioned this to you before. Before we spoke, I mean, I actually get a huge amount of reaction. Positive, and I'm glad to say to, to, to what I wrote about prayer.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's interesting because, you know, what you said at the the beginning is, uh, and I've heard this, you know, many, many times of like, you can't fool God. And I think the, you know, part of, Part of the human nature, I, you know. I think the I, I love being the contrarian a, l- a little bit sometimes on on these on these episodes. Um, but you know, I think part of the the sort of atheist view and perspective is that when we're really honest with ourselves, we can't fool ourselves either. You know, we can't fool our intuition or what we know to be morally just and and right internally, and and that it's it's in the we we I think I think there's an interesting argument because prayer is is an important part, and there's a, it plays a very important role in in all of the uh, in all the sort of like theologies, but it seems to always be dependent on on relying on an external source for guidance and relying on some form of outside help and. And there seems to be a diminishment of the self and a diminishment of the sort of what you know Carl Jung would have called the collective unconscious, the fact that we are sort of all in, interconnected in some way. Um, and he was a very, you know, um, he was a very religious being in his own right. But how, how do you sort of grapple that idea that, there's, that there's, there can be uh, a dependency that a lot of people view? Uh, prayer through like people will look at prayer and say oh this is this is me creating a dependency on God so rather than me depending on myself or you know what's my my intuition and cultivating that sense of direction and morality within myself, now I have to rely on and become dependent on a religion or or some form of external force in order to have a moral compass I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that.
1: So I'll, 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 I'll address those points in sort of the order you raised them. First of all, I would say that in terms of why prayer, I think, is effective for as a place of honesty, I, I certainly think people can be honest with themselves if they work at it. But Freud famously said, when it comes to self-justification, we all become geniuses. And so it's easy, just like with idolatry, it's easier to self-deify, it's easier to self-justify. So, but I don't want to say that it's impossible not to shed a harsh, uh, a harsh bright light on oneself. I would say, with respect to people depending on God, uh, people depending or or infantilizing themselves and saying everything depends on God, I think that. We need to pray as though and and recognizing that we depend on God, but act as though everything depends on ourselves. I mean, I think when we really pray, and I at least find this for myself, and this is just what I find, and it's entirely subjective, that when I figure out the path that I need to go in, that I feel like I have a tailwind. That's not... That's that may be because I have fully thought it out. It may be because I feel like things might become a tad easier, but I do feel like I can get a tailwind, but it depends on action. I mean, the Bible is full of that. There's very, very few instances in the Bible where a miracle handles everything and and people don't. Aren't needed to take action. Even with when the when the sea split and the when the Reed Sea splits in the Exodus, the biblical legend is that um, Nachashan ben Amidav walks into the water up to his neck until the water splits. That even that miracle, which is you know sort of the biggest brand name miracle, didn't happen without human effort and and partnering with God. And then the final point I'd like to make, which is, I think, an important point, and I've seen this, um, is that because real prayer is so difficult to accomplish, the religious traditions have all built this scaffolding around the edifice of prayer. And the scaffolding is, you know, liturgy, prepared prayers, hymnals. And the idea, the original idea was to sort of let us wade into prayer judiciously, carefully, but to get to real prayer. But I think over the centuries and over the time that people have been in religious institutions, the scaffolding is built up so that in a way it's become impenetrable. And if you have too much scaffolding, you can, yes, confuse true prayer with idolatrous prayer. So I think it's incumbent on us to really work on prayer because you don't need to be in a church, synagogue, mosque, any, any religious building or edifice to pray. People can start praying right now. People can start praying as long as they put the effort into it. And, and again, they have to pray and because of a relationship with God. But they have to act as though everything depends upon them. And if, if you do those two things... I think things turn out a little better, and I think, by the way, I think you also become a healthier individual because of that light.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there is a, uh, and we're unfortunately running out of time, but I, I do agree with you. I think that there is a a form of of awareness that con- that can come through prayer, um, and I like some of the distinctions that you've you know given out of of sort of defining the the line between um, an idolatrous form of prayer and reflection and something that is, that is, uh, much more aligned with the sort of true essence of what prayer should be. So, you know, I think Scott, we're going to have to, you know, cut the conversation off here, but I would love to have you back on the show to have a more in-depth conversation of some of these pieces and, you know, some of the other stuff that you dive into on the book, which is, which is phenomenal. So, so thank you so much for joining me today on The Man Talk Show. This is a great, great start to a conversation that I that I hope that we have again.
1: Thank you, Connor. It's really been a pleasure to have this, this deep conversation here. I don't get to do that uh, enough. And so it's a wonderful format. Thank you.
0: Yeah, wonderful. And so for everyone that's out there that's listening, thank you so much for tuning in. Definitely uh, don't forget to, uh, to share this podcast forward with a few other people that you know would enjoy the conversation. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review online on whatever platform you're on. We're on Spotify now, iTunes, Google Play, you name it, we're there. Uh, And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.